Tuesday, September 19th, 2017. Time for episode 26 of the Barnhart Podcast. The weather this morning is a great match for talking about a stormy and turbulent time in the history of the church. Not just in Puerto Rico, where they're about to get hit by a huge storm, but outside my window where the lightning and thunder are doing, well, what lightning and thunder do. If this were an old-style radio play, it would be the ideal audio setting for today's main topic, the Second Vatican Council. I know you've got a lot of things you want to cover, and I'm out of pithy and clever things to say, so why don't we dive right into it, Anne? Certainly. Um, this is actually a topic that came in by request, and in fact, it came Several in requests, by request. Several actually. Several, several requests, but the one that really prompted me to say, okay, we've got to put this on the schedule and we've got to do it soon, is it came from one of the priests who was offering one of the four benefactor masses that you all are getting every week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So one of those priests is actually the person who specifically requested that not only Vatican II be addressed, but hopefully if Super Nerd and I, if we can get our, our schedules to align, we're going to do a second podcast this week, probably Friday. And another topic that this priest um, specifically asked to be addressed is um, the canonizations of saints in in the post-Vatican II era and where we stand on that, where I personally stand on that. I'd be happy to give my opinion on that. But today, since it's such a huge topic, but it needs to be addressed, yes, the Second Vatican Council, indirect answer to the question um, just, I, I think it's always best to start out with a direct answer to the question and then go from there instead of trying to build up to an answer to the question because that rarely works. Direct answer to the question is that I believe that the Second Vatican Council is obviously a failed council and should be consigned to the to the dumpster of his of history. Should be set on fire. Should be completely forgotten. Its documents should never, ever be cited as any sort of a, an authoritative uh, teaching tool. It was conceived in malice by, it was hijacked in malice, and then the entire thing was executed in malice by infiltrators of the church, and it was specifically designed to be unclear. The documents were designed to be nebulous, self-negating, and I am absolutely convinced that it was a satanic plot to get not only, I mean, you see the fruits of the Second Vatican Council, which is an almost instantaneous in historical terms, in historical terms, a near instantaneous, massive, massive apostasy, um, especially in, in the church in the West. 90% of, of Catholics today are either outright apostates, de facto apostates, or heretics. The ones who are still in the church, um, particularly the Novus Ordo branch of the church, these people, I mean, I had somebody tell me just last night that he was talking to someone who is a who was a Catholic, a Novus Ordo Catholic, and the person literally had no idea about the Trinity, who the three persons of the Trinity were, the divinity of Christ. I mean, this is, and this is typical. This is typical. And this is, this is a good Catholic who, who because of that, probably would not have the uh, intellectual ammunition uh, based on knowing the faith to, to respond to priests or prelates who say that we worship the same God as, as the Muslims. 
Oh, of course, of course. So we worship the same God as the Muslims. Oh, sure, sounds good. Um, well, why why can't two guys get married to each other? Love is love. They don't have any ammunition to fight any of this. They know to say they know nothing of the faith. I mean, boy, that's that that's it right there. These people, and these are the people who are still going to mass. Probably not every Sunday because most Novus Ordo Catholics. Don't go to Mass every Sunday. Though, to be yeah, fair, how- there's a big difference between the documents of Vatican II and what they mean on paper uh, when, you, when you read them and how they are implemented versus whether or not somebody's even been catechized. I mean, for, for somebody to have not been catechized, the people who should have been doing that were going well beyond any errors that uh, came into the church as a result of Vatican II. Certainly. But what we can see is that this situation within the church today, not only all the people who have just flat out left, but then the people who are who still are in the Novus Ordo wing and go go to mass either weekly or sporadically. Their their situation, their complete near total lack of understanding or or belief and even some of the most fundamental, fundamental rudimentary platform concepts of of the one true church this is the fruit of the second vatican vatican council this is the fruit by which we should judge vatican II. and given that it is obvious it is obvious that vatican II is a failed council and should be utterly disregarded and and denounced as such. And I'm convinced that after the triumph of the Immaculate Heart, that is exactly what will happen. It will be completely denounced. Um, so obviously a failed council. It was hijacked. Okay. This, <laughs> I found some very, very interesting documents. I found five of the original nine uh, schema. And that the schema were, okay, John the 23rd says, okay, I'm calling a council. We're going to have a council. So starting in, I think, 1960 and then all through 1961, there are these church fathers led by Cardinal Ottaviani, who was a really, really, really good guy. And he was the head of the Holy Office, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. He got to work putting together, okay, what is this council going to be about? And there are nine documents on different topics that says, okay, this is what we're going to talk about. Um, These schema were completely and totally abandoned, disregarded, and we'll tell stories about this of what happens within three days of the opening of the council. The council was hijacked by infiltrators, led by, first and foremost, the Germans, in close collaboration with the Americans. They hijacked the council. They took the whole thing over. They scrapped the nine schema. And I mean, you read these and they are they're so clear and prophetic and powerful. And we're going to go through the one that's about marriage and the family. I read this thing and I, I mean, I had my jaw on the floor. It it goes it's almost as if it's almost as if Bergoglio and his cadre of of demon faggots who are doing all this stuff right now who are at war not against the church but as was prophesied 
against marriage in the family. It's almost as if they went back through, read this schema that was written by Cardinal Ottaviani about what Vatican II should have been discussing and doing. They went through it item by item and said, we are going to do exactly the opposite of that. We are going to ratify transgenderism, birth control, in vitro, in vitro fertilization, faggotry, da, da, da. It's all in there. It's stunning. It's all in there, prophesied. So um, it, the, the infiltrators were, um, first and foremost, the, the dynamic that was huge in, in that era of time, the middle of the 20th century, obviously was was communism okay so what happens is when they're getting ready to call this council they send out a um a, basically a poll to all of the bishops of the entire world and this this poll basically says okay we want you to respond and we want you to tell us what you think should be addressed at this council that we're getting ready to hold and rank them in order of importance the results of this were incredible because it was it wasn't unanimous, but it was nearly unanimous. One of the top items that came back in this feedback from the bishops of the world about what Vatican II should be about, one of the top items was denouncing global communism. Which shouldn't that, be a big surprise because all the popes since uh, uh, I almost said saint again, since Leo the Thirteenth had been right. condemning Marxism. And what became communism in uh, in Russia? It would have been a great time to consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart. Exactly, exactly. That it would have been. You've got all. You've got all of these people there. I think there were two thousand uh, prelates in attendance. The 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 Petrine Basilica was filled. It, I mean, you see the pictures of it, and Saint Peter's is filled. The nave is filled with prelates. This should have been, I mean, the fact that it hadn't already happened was bad enough, but man, this should have been the time. And the bishops of the world wanted it. They wanted global communism formally denounced by the church. Why didn't it happen? It happened because Paul VI Montini, who was a sodomite and probably a Freemason, was pro-communist to the hilt. So he suppressed all of that. Communism was never mentioned at the Second Vatican Council, even though the bishops of the world at that time had almost, for all intents and purposes, unanimously told the Vatican, this is what we want to do. We want this to be one of the top priorities. Paul VI Montini refused to do it. Furthermore, he invited KGB agents from the Russian Orthodox Church to come and be, quote unquote, observers between the KGB Russian Orthodox quote-unquote observers and a bunch of Protestants that were also asked to come and be quote-unquote observers, this was the guarantee that there would be not only no denunciation of global communism, but it wouldn't even be mentioned. So within three days, this German and American faction takes over and hijacks the council. Cardinal Ottaviani is literally laughed out the door. Okay, at this point, Cardinal Ottaviani is 80 years old. He's blind. I mean, he's still sharp as a tack, but he's blind. And he's, he's, a, he's a sickly old man. He gets up on the third day of the council to give 
you know, this this pleading speech about here are the schemas. This is what we need to do for the love of God. We we have to literally for the love of God, we have to address these massive moral concerns and so on and so forth. The infiltrators pull his microphone, pull the plug on his microphone. Remember, he's blind. So he's standing there and he's talking and his microphone is cut. Now, obviously, in St. Peter's Basilica, which is absolutely enormous, if you don't have the microphone and you're just standing there talking, no one can hear a word that you're saying. And so he, he realizes that his microphone's been pulled. He's confused. He's blind. He doesn't know what's going on. Then the Germans and the Americans, this faction of infiltrators, they start laughing at him. They start laughing at him. And this, this cacophony of laughter rises up in the Petrine Basilica. And eventually Cardinal Ottaviani just, you know, heartbroken, wa- walks off. He just, I mean, it, it's one of the most sickening, disgusting, and frankly informative displays that you would have the head of the CDF, the, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. This man is in charge of doctrine in the Catholic Church in his in his capacity that he is the number one advisor to the Pope in terms of all questions of doctrine, that this man was treated thus basically tells you everything that you need to know. Now, I found, um, let me see if I can find the citation of this. Okay, I found it. So here's this citation. Um, this is a direct quote um, about a man who was visiting with Monsignor Brunero Gerardini, who actually was there and who attended the council. So, um, Cardinal Ottaviani stands up, and here, here begins the quote. Whenever I think about the council, I said, I always have one image in my mind, an aging Cardinal Alfredo Ottaviani, now blind, about age 80, limping, the head of the Holy Office, and so the chief doctrinal officer of the church, born in Trastevere, which is a section of Rome, to parents who had many children, so a Roman from Rome, from the people of Rome, takes the microphone to speak to the 2,000 assembled bishops. And as he speaks, pleading for the bishops to consider the texts the Curia has spent three years preparing. Suddenly his microphone was shut off. He kept speaking, but no one could hear a word. Then, puzzled and flustered, he stopped speaking in confusion. And the assembled fathers began to laugh and then to cheer. Yes, Gerardini said, and it was only the third day. What, I said, this is the, the man who's recounting the, the story. Ottaviani's microphone was turned off on the third day of the council. On the third day, I said, I didn't know that. I thought it was later in November after the progressive group had become more organized. He responds, no, it was the third day, October 13th, 1962. The council began on October 11th. The uh, man asks, do you know who turned off the microphone? Yes, he said. It was Cardinal Leonard of Lille, France. Okay, so there were a bunch of liberals in France, too. So Germans, some French, and Americans. But then I said, 
It could almost be argued, perhaps, that such a breach of protocol, making it impossible for Ottaviani to make his arguments, somehow renders what came after, well, in a certain sense, improper. Some make that argument, Gerardini replied. So there it is. I mean, you can take that off of what was done to the the head of the CDF, the head of the Holy Office, on the third day of the council. That right there is another piece of evidence that this whole thing is is a failed council and should be um, should be completely denounced and ignored. And for those with so, eyes to see, notice what date that happened on. October 13th. October 13th. We've seen this date come up in history a few times. Yep. Speaking of which, excellent segue. Um, Now, Super Nerd, you told me something about um, something that Archbishop Lefebvre, who is, of course, the man who founded the Society of St. Pius X. And also um, on that uh, team of of, of Ottaviani putting together the original schemas. Oh, yes. Or schema, I should say. Schema, whatever. Schema is a Latin term that we, in English, in in American English, we would say meeting agenda. Meeting agenda. It's it's what we're going to cover. It's the points we're going to go through. It's the the action items, whatever. This is this is what they're going to cover in, in the in the in the council, but uh, right. yeah, he was uh, he was he was one of Ottaviani's teams putting this together because he was not a nobody. He was the papal delegate to all of French speaking Africa. He was a doctor of sacred theology. Um, the, the the list of qualifications is longer than my arm. So he, he, the fact that that he would have been on that on that uh, crew putting together the original uh, schemas makes complete sense. Absolutely. So, uh, Super Nerd, I'll turn this over to you. You tell me what you heard about the things, especially regarding the Blessed Virgin, that was on the agenda. Oh, it's it, um, this this morning when I was when I was looking at the notes and, and you, you were mentioning that I, I I texted back and said, well, it'd be nice if we could find the schemas because I, I only remember hearing this as third party remembrances of some of, of things that were heard from Archbishop Lefebvre. Uh, and then I look up a little bit and, and realize, okay, you sent a link to five of the schemas and, and apparently all nine of them have been found, but, uh, there were many they things, exist, that, but only, only five have been translated into English so far. Right. I think I still haven't found the other four. So, but five of them are there, but go ahead. But apparently all of them are still, still around in Latin in one oh, form yeah. or another. Mm-hmm. So the, mm-hmm. the, the point being, uh, from what my, my recollection of what was said that were in the original schemas, it was envisioned by by the the team that put together the schemas. This was going to be completing the work of of not only the First Vatican Council, but but completing the work of the Council of Trent. This was going to be once and for all driving a stake through the heart of Protestantism. And among the many other things that were going to be discussed was whether or not uh, the title of Our Lady as Mediatrix of All Graces was going to be infallibly defined. In the same sense mm. that Vatican One, or at Vatican One, or, or was it slightly before, uh, the the doctrine of of the Immaculate Conception uh, was defined, right, slightly before, and um, so mediatrix of all graces, but also co-redemptrix as as well. Was yes. it was it I, both I believe, of them? Yeah, I, I, aren't they the same? I, I believe it, I believe it was this one or both. Now now I'm <laughs> now I'm confused on what I said. <laughs> yeah, so that. Those were some of the things that were. Can you imagine how different the world would be? How different the world would be today if that had been done? It's absolutely astounding. And I and what Super Nerd said about you know the purpose of what Vatican II should have been about bid about was finally once and for all finishing Trent and driving a stake through the heart of Protestantism. Not only obviously was that not done, but Protestants were invited 
to be um, observers. And they were very, very influential. And they later went on to be very influential in the 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 concoction of the Novus Ordo rite itself. It's very important to remember this. You have to, Protestantism is, is the stepping stone in the Freemasonic agenda to get, to get people into basically a, a cult of man, which at the end of the day, that's what Protestantism leads to. It, it leads to atheism and a, a worshiping of the cult of man. That's what free Freemasonry is. And so obviously these infiltrators were not going to allow uh, the, the stake to be driven through the heart of Protestantism. And they certainly weren't going to allow Our Lady to be uh, defined, dogmatically defined as the mediatrix of all graces and co-redemptrix. They were not going to permit this to happen. And they, they were successful, obviously. And so you look at the fallout of all of this and you can say, OK, this puts it all in context. This this is why we are now living in a world in which, you know, people are sacrificing their children to a cult of transsexualism and things like that. This is why. Assuming how many they don't abort them in the first place. If they don't abort them in the first place, that was my next point. You know, and now how many just in in post-Christian Western civilization, that is Western Europe, well, I mean, also in Eastern Europe. I mean, the the Russians abort at just a, a staggering, staggering rate. But in, you know, Western civilization, Western Europe and and North America in particular, how, how many hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions of human beings? I mean, just in the United States, it's it's what, 60 million and counting or something like that? At a bare um, minimum, it, it's it's in the, the mid 40 millions, which is about the same number of illegal aliens we have, you know, chew on that one for a little bit. Ah, there you go. There you go. And so the other thing that Vatican II, if properly executed, would have explicitly done is it would have explicitly condemned the heresy of modernism. Remember, modernism was was defined um, basically by Pope St. Pius X, and so this, there had not been an ecumenical council since the, the heresy of modernism had basically cropped up and come to full fruition. And remember, Pius X called modernism the synthesis of all her- heresies. Pius X is who, um, is who authored the oath against modernism, which, which Paul VI suspended. He said, no, nobody has to take the oath against modernism anymore. Well, there you go. Modernism at Vatican II should have been, and they were planning, you know, if the Catholics had been in charge, if Cardinal Ottaviani and the rest of the actual believing Catholics had had their way, modernism would have been condemned. So, I mean, it's, again, I, I keep using the word obvious, but it's obvious. It's obvious that this is not just a failed council. You know, there are other councils. There have been other councils in history that have been failed councils. And that's just in the sense they just kind of they just kind of petered out. This is this is more than just a failed council. The fruits of this thing are are what we are sitting at right now, which is people talking about the fact that this this foul wretch who is squatting on the sea of peter right now this anti-pope he's a direct he's a direct result of all of this um and that 
you know, people are using phrases. I mean, not not, you know, some screeching harpy like me who gets on the Internet and rants and raves. But we're talking about people like Professor Joseph Seifert, who recently said and was fired for saying that the fruits of what this this foul wretch Bergoglio and his cadre of faggots led by this Tucho Fernandez sodomite who wrote Amoris Laetitia and uh, a good portion of Amoris Laetitia is in fact lifted from Fernandez's previous writings, including, including his pornographic book, Heal Me With Your Mouth, The Art of Kissing, which is an ode in, in some respects to oral sodomy of various and sundry types. Um, there are sections of this foul wretch's por- pornographic, homoerotic book that are now in Amoris Laetitia. These people are sitting around laughing, laughing at all of us, laughing at the church, laughing at God, whom most of whom a good number of them actively hate laughing that this filthy homoerotica is now considered part of the magisterium of the Catholic Church. But of course, we know that it isn't because we know that uh, Bergoglio is an anti-pope, et cetera, et cetera. And when I use the word we, super nerd, I am, of course, using the the royal we. <laughs> I don't want to put I don't want to put any words in your mouth. Um, no, and the, only, so, the only thing I was going to say is with regard to the idea of laughing at God, um, scroll back a few days and remember what the epistle was in the traditional rite uh, for Sunday. Uh, it quotes St. Paul saying, God is not mocked. God and is so not th- mocked. That's very timely. Yep. Very, very timely. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, Another point I want to make about Vatican II, first of all, look at the fact that this filthy wretch Bergoglio and all of these infiltrators and all of these truly horrible people who are trying who are trying to drag souls into hell. Their position is that all Catholic catechesis today must must be done almost exclusively through the lens of this, the failed Second Vatican Council. You, have you noticed this? You're not allowed to talk about or cite anything that happened before Vatican II. It's just, it's off the table. It's, it has no meaning. They never cite Trent. They never cite any of these previous councils. And even more than that, any of these previous documents. Very, very rarely is even a document pre-Vatican II cited, and then a lot of times when they do cite a pre-Vatican II document, they basically misquote it or take it out of context or try try to make it say something that not only does it not say, but there are some instances where they try to totally invert the meaning, but rarely do they even cite anything. Think about this. If these people, we know what they are and we know how malevolent they are, if they absolutely insist that not only do you have to, you know, swear allegiance to this council and, and what these dogs breakfast documents that it puked out, not only do you have to swear allegiance to this, you have to swear allegiance to the spirit of it. That, that's what they demand. That's what they demand. And all Catholic, all Catholic teaching today must be done through the lens of this failed council. Doesn't that tell you something? Doesn't that tell you something right there? If all these bad people are that 
strident and insistent and intransigent that you have to swear fealty to this thing. That tells you right there. So, well, you you the, made the quote earlier where somebody was surprised that, uh, that this happened on the third day of the council, not later when all the uh, the liberal faction got organized. They were right. organized a long time previous, um, maybe not going back exactly to 1517. But if mm. you look at the Protestant church, was there really any church history prior to Luther's revolt? Not really. You don't really cite right. things going further back in history. And the people who do tend to research back to the church doctors end up becoming Catholics. I know several yeah. of them, and I'm going to be interviewing some of them coming up. But the point, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a parallel in the sense that, you know, a lot of people now, um, people, um, the, the modern, modern prelates and whatnot, they don't cite anything previous to the 1960s in terms of, of, of their, their sources for Catholic doctrine. And the ones who do tend to be traditionalists. Yeah, absolutely. No question about it. No question about it. The other thing about these documents is if you read the the, the documents of Vatican II, um, they they were written to be unclear. Now, SuperNerd and I, I've sent SuperNerd the links to these um, to these original schema that were written, and they are. I mean, it's like reading Leo the Thirteenth almost. It is just clear, concise easy to understand, blah, blah, you know, bam, 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 no problem at all. No problem at all to understand exactly what's being said. And it's said with, with economy and not very many words. Now you compare that to the documents of Vatican II, which are just, like I said, they are a dog's breakfast. They were intentionally drafted to be mealy mouthed, unclear, self negating, I, and and look what the fruits of this have been. And I have, I don't know if I've written about this or spoken about this on some interview or something previously, but what this is about largely, and, um, you know, a lot of good guys are, are guilty for falling for this satanic trap. It's about getting people to waste time. The last 50 years, Catholic academia, theologians, philosophers, blah, blah, blah. The Catholic Academy has wasted the last 50 years trying to take these dog's breakfast documents that came out of the failed Second Vatican Council and trying to, quote unquote, interpret them, trying to get them to make any sort of sense, trying to get them to sound Catholic, trying to get the for traditional believing Catholics trying to get the previous teaching history of the church to reconcile to these documents. And in a certain sense, a lot of people, particularly in the academy, they're okay with this precisely because these documents are such a dog's breakfast that you can have an entire career. This could go on ad nauseum because it's so unclear and it's so nebulous. You can just keep writing and writing and writing and writing. There's an, you're never going to just come to the point where someone, you know, slams their hand down on the table and says, look, this is what this means because they're they're They were written to not mean anything and to mean everything that sucks these people in to wasting time. Every, every Catholic intellectual who wastes time on these documents, that is time that could have been spent teaching the faith, spreading the faith, 
you know, going back and looking at the, the, the valid counsels, the good counsels, look, look more at Trent, use Trent to explain what's going on in today's world. Use the writings of, you know, Pius X, Leo the 13th. I mean, all of them on and on and on, even all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the church fathers. And of course, scripture included in that. Certainly nobody's doing this. Nobody's doing this. Why doesn't anyone know the faith? Well, maybe because it's you, you've been trying to use these malignantly, maliciously flawed documents to try to say, well, we're going to use this to teach the truths of, of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And Satan is squealing with delight because it makes no sense. It's incomprehensible. It means nothing. It means everything. And so... 50 years now of the academy spinning its wheels wasting time and some of them like i said they're completely fine with it because they can make an entire career out of this there's no end to it there's you can keep writing and writing and writing about about even even the the simplest truths of the faith can now be just completely expanded into meaning nothing and to meaning everything and so it's an endless gravy train of grants and um you know positions within the academy and how many how many masters can you write and how many doctoral theses can you write and so on and, f and so forth it's it's just a gravy train bred by the fact that the whole thing is about getting people to waste time waste time you're not spending your time teaching people the faith you're wasting time trying to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear yeah silk purse out of a sow's ear with these with these maliciously unclear documents you have to stop we this is why this council needs to be declared invalid failed consigned to the dustbin of history stop talking about it stop trying to reconcile you know uh, the novus ordo liturgy to the spirit of vatican ii this is an exercise in in just in diabolical disorientation and misdirection stop stop doing it oh but then i th then i might lose my job i don't care if you lose your job maybe you should lose your job if you're not willing to do the right thing go ahead super nerd in terms of what does the Vatican, Second Vatican Council actually require, it's instructive to go to the closing, uh, the closing section, uh, not the closing ceremonies, but the, the closing um, session, I should say. And Paul VI said that he, it's, it's a particular Latin formulation, but he says that there is uh, nothing extraordinary happened here. And in other <laughs> words, there's there's nothing nothing happened at the Second Vatican Council which actually applies. To the church's magisterium, yes, there, there's it's pastoral. There are some things that we can take from this that that could be applied to um, maybe tweaking some things here and there. But it was never meant to be at the level of Trent, uh, where we are discussing dogma. There were no anathemas. There were no you have to do this or you're not Catholic situations. And it reminds me of an of an article uh, written years ago by I want to say it was Christopher Ferreira. He was referring to just the document on on the liturgy. And he was saying mm -hmm. this was a masterwork of loopholes. And he's writing this. Yeah. He, he is a lawyer himself. He's and a he, lawyer. Yeah. And and, um, and I don't know if he quotes something else I've heard where um, referring to the documents of Vatican II, the idea that they were conceived in heresy, they result in heresy, but the actual documents themselves are not heretical. They're just unclear. And you look through 
the, the document on sacred liturgy. And if, if you approach this document as a conservative who believes what the church believes, you can look at this document and say, yeah, I can understand a, a traditional understanding of this document. If you are a liberal chopping at the bit to throw everything out and remake it, you immediately see every loophole and every possibility yep. that exists here. So, for example, you you have sections in there that say that that Gregorian chant is, is the is our uh, mag- magnificent patrimony and should always have pride of place. But the door is open to doing something else. Latin mm-hmm. should always be the language of the church. But every mm-hmm. single item that's raised, every single item, there's an exception. Yep. And this goes to uh, this this notion of diabolical disorientation, a lack of clarity. You, you know that a lack of clarity comes from hell, um, confusion, not speaking clearly. When our Lord Himself says, "Let your yes be yes and your no be no," and anything above and beyond that is is from hell. Okay, this is God Almighty saying this. Maybe we should listen and pay attention to this. Now, think about what Bergoglio said in the early days of his anti-papacy, what has now become basically the true motto of the Bergoglian anti-papacy. Hagan Leo or Agan Leo, which means make a mess in Spanish. But what that actually means colloquially, if you ask a native Spanish speaker, okay, if you if you were really going to translate into colloquial English, what does Agan Leo mean? It means raise hell or bring hell. It means raise hell. That is what the the that is what his declared theme of his papacy is, raise hell. And I think he said it, surprise, surprise, he said it at World Youth Day in Brazil, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. He told all these young people in Brazil, running around naked, lots of them fornicating, and he says to them, go out there and raise hell. Make a mess and raise hell. This is the theme. Should we maybe take something from this? Should we take these people at their word? Yes, because one of the hallmarks of diabolical narcissists, psychopaths, and also of Satan himself, they derive one of their greatest sources of of narcissistic satisfaction, um, you know, psychopathic, satanic satisfaction of explicitly telling people what they are doing, intend to do, what their agenda is. I will tell you straight up what my agenda is, and you're still going to follow me. You're going to sit there and watch me do it, and then after I do it, you're going to defend me. They get tremendous satisfaction off of seeing people grovel to to their feet and defend Defend their wicked actions because it's all about the cult of personality and it's all about the acquisition of power. And I mean, what what more demonstration of of a paradigm of power could you possibly have than announcing to the Catholic Church, I'm going to tear you down. I want you to raise hell. It is my intention to completely destroy this thing so that it can never be turned back. And he has said that it is his intention to do so much damage that it can never be redone. And you're going to sit here, you're going to watch me do it. And you're going to not only that, but now what we're seeing and one of my next essays is going to be on this is the fact that you now have faithful Catholics who it is obvious 
are going to follow anti-Pope Bergoglio into his apostate anti-church, and they are going to do this and hold it up as proof of what good, faithful Catholics they are. You already see this. You already see trad Catholics explicitly laying this out. He's the Pope. By gosh, he's the Holy Father. And what he says goes, and they they will march into the apostate anti-church with him and hold it up as proof of how faithful they are. Now, this is fascinating to me because for ever since I started reading scripture, and I would get to the point, and I think it's like Matthew 24, when our Lord says, you know, it's going to get to the point when there will be these false prophets and these people who rise up and they will be so, it, it will be so, um, I don't know if persuasive is the way to put it, but there will even be the elect who, who are tricked by these false prophets. And, I, and that always struck me. And I thought, now, wait a minute. How could it be that, you know, especially now, let's put it in the context of now, how could a faithful Catholic and even trad Catholics, right? A faithful, traditional Catholic, how could it possibly be that such a person who's going to the old mass and who's availing themselves of the sacraments and has had, you know, up until now, a completely rock solid and good and firm um, understanding of the faith. How could it possibly be that the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist or any false prophet could trick these people? How could these people be tricked into following a false prophet into apostasy, into an anti-church? And I was just like, I, I would just sit and think about that and say, what what could that possibly look like, ladies and gentlemen? It's happening right now. It's happening right now. This is it. You're seeing faithful trad Catholics who are absolutely intransigent and insistent that Bergoglio is not an anti-pope, that he is the pope. There will be no discussion otherwise. We are not going to even look at the fact of all of these horrible, very, very strange things that have revolved around, you know, uh, Ratzinger's attempted faux partial abdication. We we are not going to discuss any of that. We're not going to discuss canon law. We're not going to discuss common sense. We we he is the pope, like it or not. Bergoglio is the Pope until the Pope says he's not the Pope and we will follow him and anyone else who doesn't follow him is a schismatic, is a heretic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. People, we're seeing this happen right now. Faithful Catholics are publicly declaring that they will follow an anti-Pope who, I, according to me, from what I'm seeing, gives many, many indications that he is, in fact, the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist, that they will follow him into apostasy. I, I couldn't have written this. I mean, who, who could have ever put together a, a, a cogent, reasonable, believable narrative as to how that would play out? Well, you, you don't have to make it up because it's happening right now in real time, in real life, right in front of us, right in front of us. So ugh, it's, it's, it's just kind of creepy and scary and sad to watch, but 
but it's happening and it's 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 frightening and it's it's humbling and it should it should tell all of us that we need to stay confessed we need to stay in the state of grace and what's also very very sad and i will speak to this personally because uh, this is this is happening to me right now i have people who i i i have called my friends they have made very clear that they are going to follow anti-Pope Bergoglio into the apostate anti-church. Um, they, I mean, they've made this clear. And the time has come when these relationships, if, if they jeopardize your, if they jeopardize your mortal soul, you need to start severing these relationships and you say, well, oh, no, you can't do that. You know, loyalty and friendship is everything. Well, you know what? Our Lord specifically said that he came to bring a sword and he would set mother against daughter and family member against family member and friend against friend. This is all completely to be expected. But you have to ask yourself the question, is quote unquote loyalty to family and friends more important than loyalty to Jesus Christ and his holy church. If loyalty, quote unquote, to family and friends is a higher priority f for you, then you are guilty of a sin against the first commandment, which is in fact idolatry. It's it, idolatry. It reminds if, me if of keeping, a saying from, or a, a scene in, in the movie, A Man for All Seasons, where uh, I want to say it was uh, Duke of York and, and Thomas More are, are talking. And, and Thomas says, if I'm wrong and I end up being going to hell, are you going to come with me out of, out of, right. uh, out of loyalty and, and, and friendship? Exactly. Yep. It's exactly correct. And it, again, it's, it's a sin against the first commandment and the commandments are in, in the order that they're in for a reason. If you're guilty of idolatry, you're guilty of one of you're, you're guilty of a sin against the first commandment, the most, the most important. You're putting something else above God. This also applies to your job. Um, if you say, well, I can't, if, if, I, if I acknowledge that Bergoglio is an anti-pope and I acknowledge that Vatican II is a failed council and da-da-da-da, and you acknowledge all these things that are the truth, then, uh, then I will lose my job. And so my job comes first and God, who is himself truth, that comes second. Well, okay, you're guilty of idolatry. Um, if you say, if I come out publicly against anti-Pope Bergoglio qua anti-Pope, if I come out against, sec the, uh, against Vatican II um, as a council and, and denounce it as failed and denounce all these documents as null, I will lose a goodly portion of my, of my donation stream. Okay, then your idol is money and you are guilty of idolatry. Our Lord says, first of all, take up your cross and follow me. But also he says, my yoke is sweet and light. Do the right thing and God will provide. Where's the faith? You have to have faith. This is the fruit of the first glorious mystery, the resurrection of our Lord. The fruit of that mystery is faith. If you're lacking in faith, if you just, if you don't see how it's possible that God could provide for you. Um, if you, and also another thing, another one of the mysteries of the rosary is the third joyful, which is the birth of our Lord. The fruit of that mystery is poverty. So 
fruit of the third joyful birth of our Lord, let this give you the grace, if you are lacking it, of not being afraid of poverty, not being afraid of having a reduction in your standard of living. Um, and the other word maybe, I've heard for it is detachment, which is detachment, the, the better yeah. idea there. It's, it's, a, it's a spiritual poverty where you have things, but they, or you own things, but they don't own you. You are detached and indifferent as to whether or not you have them in your life. Exactly. Exactly. And so, I mean, again, the rosary, just you guys, I'm, I'm telling you, the rosary is is so powerful. And you say, oh, my, you just keep you just keep saying those Hail Marys over and over and over again. Well, well, yes, you are saying the Hail Mary over and over again, because, you know, why should you why should you be sick and tired of of saying these wonderful things about our blessed Lord and his mother? Every time you say a rosary, um, I can't remember which saint it was, Super Nerd, maybe you remember, who said, it's like it's like Satan has a gigantic sledgehammer just brought down on his head every time somebody says a Hail Mary. But I'm telling you that if you, if you pray the rosary and you're thinking about the mysteries, you're thinking about the fruits of the mysteries, and you're thinking about how it applies to your life and to the world in general— these things will just keep coming to you and coming to you and coming to you. And there's there's a very good reason why uh, St. Louis de Montfort said that anyone, anyone who holds the Blessed Virgin in anything but the highest esteem and anyone who says anything against the rosary, like it's boring, it's stupid, it's the dumbest prayer ever, it's the most boringest prayer ever. Okay, you need to run like hell in the opposite direction away from someone like that, because there is something very, very wrong there. And not only should you not listen to anything that they say, you should almost take as a counter indicator anything that they say. Okay, so I I can't recommend the rosary enough. You can start with just the, the, the five mysteries of the day, joyful, sorrowful or glorious. But ideally, you should get up to saying the entire thing every day. That's and 15, it, not 20. That's 15, not 20. What, what's your awesome joke, super nerd? Someone asked you. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the, if, question, the question was, is it okay <laughs> to pray the, uh, the luminous mysteries? And I say, yeah, as long as you don't forget to pray the rosary. Ah, that's fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. So pray the rosary if you can. You know, obviously pray it inside of a Catholic church in front of the Blessed Sacrament. And even better, in front of the blessed sacrament exposed in adoration pray the rosary while you're while you're on your knees in front of our eucharistic lord exposed in the monstrance in a monstrance on the altar um do it and it just all of these things they just keep coming up and coming up and coming up we talked about so last now, time the the idea of the the silence at, at the low mass and how this is a a launching off point for uh, contemplative prayer. And the rosary mm-hmm. is at the same time, the easiest and hardest prayer there is because mm-hmm. it is a spoken word. You're verbally saying something, but it it is also a contemplative prayer as well. And I made the comment on, on the last show that um, if, if during the, the mass you are distracted or lose track of what it is you're praying, you can fall back on the actual prayers of the mass uh, in your hand missile as a, a way mm-hmm. to reground and get back to where you're supposed to be, at least with, with the liturgy of the mass. With the rosary, that's a constant grounding. If you get distracted or lose track of what it was uh, you, were, you were praying about or 
a temptation knocks you off your off your balance, so to speak, you can fall right mm-hmm. back on the prayers themselves, which are very contemplative. They're right out of Scripture. And if you can't find something just in the words of the Hail Marys themselves for launching off into contemplation, then maybe you need to do, need to do a little more reading. Um, the Bible, other right. things. I mean, Louis de Montfort's got <laughs> an entire library of, of books on this. Oh, yeah. And this actually goes to one of the main critiques that Protestants make is they talk about uh, how our Lord said um, you shouldn't pray in vain repetition. Well, that's exactly right. You shouldn't pray in vain repetition, but you can use the rosary and the focused praying of the Hail Mary combined with, and believe me, this is true, you can do this. You can say the Hail Marys and be focused on that and at the same time be contemplating the mystery, the fruit of the mystery, how this applies to your life. You say, oh, that's crazy. There's no way. It's one or the other. No, it's not one or the other. In fact, saying the Hail Marys actually helps you to contemplate the higher mystery and you're still focusing on what the Hail Mary itself says. And, you know, the Our Father and the other prayers and the, uh, the, um, the Fatima prayer, you know, <laughs> well, the, save us from the fires of hell. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a good prayer. The assertion that you can't say the Hail Mary and, and um, be in contemplation at the same time is like saying you can't read a Shakespearean sonnet and, and see the, the meaning behind it at the same time as while you're reading it or sing a, a, an opera aria and understand the metaphysical uh, reality behind the words and, and the melody. It's ludicrous to say that you can't do both at the same time. The one serves the other as a composite whole. Exactly. And this is a function, I think, of contemporary society fed by the entertainment paradigm of just shortening people's attention span, making people dumb. Everything has to be instant entertainment right now, direct, you know, quick cut between this, quick cut between that. You know, it's it's a function. Maybe maybe if you're having difficulty praying the rosary, maybe you should, I don't know, quit watching TV. How about that? Maybe the fact that you're watching TV and you're addicted to this this stuff is maybe that's the reason why you think that the the rosary is the dumbest, stupidest, stupidest, most boringest prayer ever. Maybe it's because of that. Maybe you should stop watching your filthy, disgusting, psychopathic, pornographic television shows or just just the entire mode in general. Stop doing that. It, you're, you're not able to think. You're not able to focus. You're not able to pray. I think it's pretty clear. Um, it's been proven also that that the there, there's a certain muscle memory that develops in the, in the brain and the cognitive abilities that if you watch a lot of television, uh, the average length between segues is now about 45 uh, seconds. And, yeah. and so if you watch enough television, you are training your brain to not pay attention for more than 45 seconds. And this has disastrous consequences, whether it's we're talking about the political um, sphere where all you can concentrate on are sound bites and you can't logically think about what policies actually mean in, in their in their uh, philosophical and, and, and in their application. It also means mm-hmm. you can't pray for more than 45 seconds and, and lock on to something. So in terms of a satanic um, idea or a, a satanic plan for destroying the ability to pray, yeah, how about you can't concentrate for more than 45 seconds at a time? That's right. And I also think, um, you know, I think the news media, cable news is even worse than that. I don't think it's 45 seconds. I think it's, I think it's 
like around 20 seconds or maybe even now less than 20 seconds. And, you know, I noticed this years and years and years ago where you'd sit and watch something like the O'Reilly factor in the evening and O'Reilly would ask a question and the guest would literally get, I don't know, two sentences out. And then it was cut off, go to the, go to the next thing because you, you can't let anyone um, expand on any ideas it's all about the truncating of the attention span. And so what this has led to, I'm absolutely convinced, you know, I keep railing about how people cannot think in logical progression. A leads to B, B leads to C, C leads to D. And so people can't think anything through and certainly not make any logical corollaries. Why is that? It's because the attention span is, is too short. They can't hold a train of thought in their mind. They can't just sit in stillness and say, okay, I'm going to just sit here and think about this. And I'm going to think about it for as long as I need to, to go from A to B to C to D and see what the logical progression of this base premise is. I don't think people have the capacity to do that anymore because their brains have been fried and they have no attention span. Even internally, they have no, they have no inward attention span and that boy that is just remarkable if you if you stop and think about it and how demonic it is that that men have been robbed even of their capacity to think which is you know talk about the fact that we are rational intellects and that that is is how we are made in the image and likeness of god take that away take away the ability to think in logical succession you're essentially taking away reason. Um, and, and that's where modern man is right now, just completely incapable of thinking. Um, and so all of these things are able to happen and go unchecked. And these now, errors did not start with Vatican II, but it's more that they, they came into the forefront uh, at the same time as uh, the Vatican II was wrapping up. Yeah. Okay, what I want to do right now is just start um, on a couple of these pull quotes from the schema on marriage and family. Um, like I said earlier in the podcast, I, I found this link to the five translated of the nine schema. And I instantly opened the first one I opened was marriage and family. And again, these things are written clearly, succinctly and with economy of language. And so you can read the whole thing very quickly. And so I want to at least start on this. We'll watch the clock, Super Nerd, and we'll get to a good breaking point. We'll see how many we get through. And I will, um, we will post whatever pull quotes I cover on the podcast uh, post and notes so that you all can, can see these quotes directly and a link to all of the schemas themselves. So I want to start with paragraph four in the schema on marriage and family. And I'm just going to read it because it's, it's pretty short. The title of the paragraph is Man Not the Absolute Lord of the Body. It should be noted that God alone is the absolute Lord of man's life and of its integrity, particularly with respect to what makes man naturally capable of and associates him with God in the propagation of human life. Listen to this. Attempts to change one's sex, therefore, when this is sufficiently determined, are wicked nor is it allowed in order to save the health of the whole man to mutilate his genital organs or to render them infertile. 
there are other way if there are other ways to provide for his health nor in any case is or can there be a right to transplant into the human body the sexual organs of animals which produce the germinative cells of their own genus or vice versa nor also to try to unite the human germ cells of each sex in a laboratory even if this is done without violating modesty and chastity and solely for the sake of scientific progress. Remember, this was written in 1960 and 1961. And look at what has already been identified as, um, again, logical corollaries of the breakdown in sexual morality, transgender, transsexualism, and, and mutilating genitals explicitly condemned as wicked in this schema and Vatican II would have conceivably followed this schema and would have explicitly condemned this. And now look what's going on. Look what's going on. You have that execrable faggot, James Martin, going around and 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 saying, oh, you know, sodomites have greater faith and all of my trans people, they're so fantastic and blah, blah, blah. They're they're promulgating this stuff. The other thing I want to touch on here is, um, is, is the notion of, um, physical sterilization, which is now, I mean, it's now completely, completely common. How many people do you know that, you know, oh yeah, we had our second. So I went ahead and had my tubes tied. I've had people tell me that they have gone into Catholic hospitals, given birth to their second child and been, and been pressured been pressured hard by doctors and nurses to have their tubes tied to the point that they were actually scared that if something happened and they got put under under general anesthesia that they would that they were actually afraid that they might be sterilized against their will in in a catholic hospital that's how bad this is it also discusses in vitro fertilization in vitro fertilization is grave mortal sin. Now, as we know, God writes, writes straight on crooked lines. And so children that are born of this are, of course, have every bit as much human dignity. And they're, they are in exactly the same way called to be with God forever in heaven. But the, the act of performing in vitro fertilization, having that done on yourself that is so disordered and it leads to such horrific logical corollaries. For example, women having themselves impregnated and inseminated with the, um, for example, with the sperm of faggots who want pet children. And so you're going to have these women who are going to be these breeding grounds for these IVF conceived children that are, that were conceived specifically for the purpose to be placed in a home with sex perverts with diabolical narcissist sex perverts and there are there are countless instances where this has been done and the media always hushes it up that for example um children get placed with with two faggots who you know go around and talking about how they're pseudo married and all all these filthy lies and uh, sure enough the pseudo faggots are abusing the children especially the male children and it, it 
at best case scenario, best case scenario, these faggots want these children as pets or even as, as just fashion accessories. You know, it's really interesting. One of the most <laughs> strident, two of the most strident people who have been talking out against um, letting sex perverts, sodomites, you know, uh, faggots, dykes, any sex pervert adopt children are the, in fact, sodomite fashion designers in Italy, Dolce and Gabbana. Okay, these are two sodomite men, but they're actually, I mean, this is bizarre to say, socially conservative. And they've come out in Italy and they've received tremendous negative uh blowback and 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 um even have suffered you know threats of boycott and so on and so forth because they said look we're two homosexual men we are telling you right now the last people on the surface of this or any other planet who should have access to children who should have children given to them that they are responsible for are gay men this is a very bad idea, and we're saying this as gay men. And people, oh, you hater, you self-loathing this. And they're like, no, we're sorry. We're gay men, and we know gay men. We know gay men really well. And they are the most ill-suited people in the world to have children. And it's true. Why is it true? Because sodomite men, all sexual perversion is a subset of diabolical narcissism. What is diabolical narcissism? It's when a human being makes the free, conscious choice to purge himself of love, or you can call it charity. A human being who has freely chosen to not love and to only therefore use other human beings as objects to give them narcissistic supply these are, yes, the last people in the world who should be handed children because it's just it's a disaster waiting to happen. Um, so that's ju that's just paragraph four. Uh, paragraph five for by divine ordination revealed also in the law of nature that man has a healthy sexual power does not give him the right to exercise it. That right is obtained only in a legitimate marriage and indeed within the morally prescribed limits. Just that one sentence. I think how counter this, this hedonistic culture that is where people, even, even people who um, claim to be Orthodox traditional Catholics will go out and say, look, you have the right to do whatever you want behind closed doors in your bedroom. Uh, nope, sorry, that's wrong. You do not, no human being has the right to have sex. Let me say that again. No human being has the right to have sex. You, and it is a crime to have sex outside of marriage. The right, quote unquote, is obtained only in a legitimate marriage and indeed within morally prescribed limits. So what that means is, the only people who can be said to have any sort of a right to having sex are people who are married to each other, one man and one woman, obviously, because that's the only way you can have a marriage. Anything else is a lie. Anything else is a delusion. And then even within that, for example, people would say, well, if you're going to say that people have a right to have sex within marriage, then that means that a husband can rape his wife. No, because look what it said at the very end within morally prescribed limits. So of course, no, a man does not have the right 
to to violently rape his wife. And believe me, yes, absolutely, that happens. It, it happens and it has happened. And there are people running around this world who are the product of marital rape. Yes, absolutely, 100%. The husband does not have the right to violently rape his wife. But people who are married to each other, they do have the right to have sex. They have the right, the husband has the right to ask the wife and the wife has the right to ask the husband. It's called the marital duty. And if, if one or the other declines, there better be a really good reason. I mean, if, you know, if, if one, if a husband or a wife is just terribly grievously ill or, you know, even just has the flu and feels really, really bad, of course. I mean, and this is where love comes into it. Why in the world would someone demand that their spouse that they love, who is, let's, let's just say it's something mild, is really sick with just a case of food poisoning. Why would, if you love your spouse, why would you then absolutely demand while, the, while your spouse is bleh, in bed, sick, oh, I feel awful, you know, I'm throwing up and other things, oh, this is terrible, please no, I can't do this right now. What, what kind of a monster would say, I absolutely demand that you do this right now? I mean, that, that shows a lack of charity, a lack of love. Um, but there is such a thing as the marital duty, and women d- should not... And it is it is not morally licit for a woman to just decide that she's going to cut her husband off and no more sex. This is a sin. This is a sin. There are rights within marriage. But again, you know, people can't think nuanced thought. Everything is just bam right there. Oh, the church says um, that that the spouses have a right to have sex in marriage. So that means you're in favor of rape. Well, of course it doesn't. And that's that's idiocy. That's absolute idiocy. And it's sad that so many people will, will fall for arguments like that now. So that's just paragraph five. Oh, wait, there's another part of paragraph five that we can do real quick. An unmarried man, therefore, has a serious duty to refrain from actions which alone or with others of their nature constitute perfect or imperfect use of his properly and specifically sexual power or which by free and conscious will are directed to such use. The severe warning of the Holy Spirit through the apostle should be remembered, quote, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. That is 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Indeed, even deliberate evil internal acts against chastity are severely forbidden by the Lord, nor should it be said, especially today, that they cannot be avoided. Okay, that is chapter eight right there of that filthy, disgusting document, Amoris Laetitia. These actions can't be avoided. You were made that way, faggot. Oh, yes, God made you wanting to, created you with with these inclinations and wills you to commit these grotesque, disgusting, filthy, perverse sexual acts. God made you that way and thus you can't avoid it. Or you have to keep on having sex in an adulterous faux marriage. You know, this is somebody's second or third marriage or whatever. 
Oh, but you have to keep having sex. It can't be avoided. Remember I said at the top of the podcast, it's almost as if, it's almost as if Bergoglio and his cadre of demon fags went through and read this schema on marriage and said, okay, we're just going to, we're going to go down the line and we're going to systematically attack everything that Cardinal Lataviani, Archbishop Lefebvre, and the others who drafted these schemas, we're going to go through and we're going to systematically attack every single point. We just got through two of the paragraphs, paragraph four and paragraph five. Um, of Super one Nerd document. Of one document. Super Nerd and I will do another podcast on Friday and we'll probably chip away some more at this. We need to talk about um, canonized saints and we need to do another uh, module on, you know, how to, how to pray the mass because there, we got a lot of positive feedback on that. But I think this is probably a good breaking point. What do you think? I think so. Okay. Just a general reminder that uh, Benefactor Masses are on Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, and that there is a weekly requiem. Please remember to join your intentions with these Masses. The email address where you can send your questions, comments, feedback is podcast at barnhart.biz. This podcast is produced by SuperNerd. If you found some value in this episode and would like to return some value, you can, do, you can find the link for that over at supernerdmedia.com slash donate. I would like to uh, specifically thank uh, N... That's his first name, I guess. Uh, Mike, <laughs> Christopher, Carly, and Erica, and as well as John, who figured out how to send uh, a donation without PayPal getting anything. Thank you very much for your generosity. And don't forget uh, to donate to Anne. Her donation link is at the uh, side of every page on barnhart.biz, or if you're on a mobile device, it's at the very bottom of the page. Uh, she makes her living through this, so um, don't forget to, to uh, support her as well. Uh, any other ideas or parting thoughts for this week, Anne? Just once again, I'm, I'm like a broken record, but this is the kind of broken record that you want to have. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to one and all. Be assured of my prayers, and I hope everyone has a wonderful week, and hopefully Super Nerd and I will talk at you on Friday. Okay. Until then, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Ann. Thanks, guys. God bless. God bless.